0: has been hectic for you and um, it's been hectic for me in different ways I had not yeah the I baby heard it congratulations yeah, yeah. so is this your much.
1: first or, or what, what my, number my is third
0: I have an 18 month old also which makes things a bit hectic because she's the boss oh my gosh
1: yeah, I have an eight year
0: old as well oh okay got it so this is your third so so yeah. a, a boy girl
1: what that? what's the order
0: yeah so boy eight um girl mm-hmm. 18 months old and then little boy Leo just born last week Oh, my goodness. Yeah, be good for so, you. Well, I know this time, is a hectic
1: yeah. time, more hectic for you than it is for me. So I remember <laughs> so those <sure>. years. So, <laughs> so well, I'm just glad that you're able to squeak me in. Yeah, no, know. That's great. And look, you
0: know, I've been hoping to get you on for a while. This is um, my podcast called thought and, and yep. t- thought and Truth. And it used to be actually training thought and truth and used to be the physical, mental and spiritual connection. And that's what I was aiming at. And this is my first episode where it's just thought and truth because I wanted to go I wanted to focus more on Christianity and my faith and investigating um, different in uh, different aspects of it. You know, yeah. So I, that's why I thought it'd be great having you on. And it was always my my hope to get yourself on because you were one of the people who really helped me when um, oh, I absolutely. had my my turnaround, um, born again experience or conversion. Um, and I did notice that a lot of people were kind of saying, you know, what what about this and what about that? And I said, well, I don't really know the facts behind all this. All I know is that this feels right to me. And so I had to do a bit of digging and this is where um, your analytical work really came forward and really was a great help. Um, And I'm
1: so glad, especially cold case Christianity. Yeah. And this is kind of like the companion piece to that. Um, We knew we wanted to do something that kind of talked about a lot of the stuff we didn't talk about early in, in cold case. And you don't necessarily always get another chance to write a book and the Jesus space. And this was something his honor wanted to do. So I'm like, Hey, this is good. We get a chance to continue the story. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And I love the book. I am, I am the person of interest. I'm, I'm still reading it. I got it last week and I'm, but I've been delving in and out of it and I'm loving it. I'm loving the illustrations. I know your, your background in art has a lot to do with that, but it really yeah, puts it you in the place of the detective office, you know, as you're laying out your plans yeah. um, and even just, just your timelines and everything, I think is great. Um, but for, for people who, who maybe aren't sure who you are, and I know you're sick and tired of introducing yourself, but you might give a brief introduction.
1: Well, OK, so, so yeah, I, 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 my journey toward this was maybe a little bit different than yours was initially, but we probably ended up traveling down some of the same roads. I, I was uh, not a believer until I was about 35, um, really saw no purpose for any of this and didn't even have a reason to really start looking in this direction i just knew that the few christians i knew um didn't really seem all that different than the world around me uh, to be honest i'm here in los angeles county and, and so i'm working homicides i was a detective when i first started to look at the gospels so i naturally used the skill set i had which was you know an investigative skill set i mean you're making claims about this guy having said or done something in the past well, I spent most of my career working cold cases where you're trying to figure out what happened in the past, even though you have no access to anybody anymore, because everyone's dead. Um, so it's kind of a similar approach. Granted, this is a much longer period of time. I get that. Um, and the claims are much more grandiose. I get that too. But a lot of it, the skill set about trying to determine, can you trust anything the gospel authors said? That's something that I knew how to do. But also I was building these cases that are cumulative and they're based on, on evidence that you might not think, that people might not think is even evidence. Things that are like, you know, everything counts and everything gets used in these cases. There's things that you think are so benign. This is, if you've ever watched the Sherlock Holmes episode, you know that, that sometimes it's that thing you've been walking by for the last five years that ends up being the thing that makes the case. And this is especially true in cold cases, because clearly if it had been something straightforward, they would have solved it 20 years ago. It's always going to be something that's hiding in some way. And so when I was looking at the case for Christianity the first time, um, I was looking at both the stuff that's in the New Testament. But it seemed to me that if Jesus was who he said he was, wouldn't we expect there to be a bigger ripple than just four authors in antiquity who write the four gospels? I mean, it seemed to me this was really true this would have a kind of exponential impact on human culture. Now it does, but no one really, for the most part, is looking to see what impact Jesus and his followers had in these various areas of history. So what I'm doing in this book, this, this book called person of interest is I'm taking an approach that I take in, in, uh, in, in, cold cases in which we have no body. Those are not unusual. Um, somebody will kill a business partner or kill a spouse And then just claim, oh, I don't know where this person is, you know, ran off, I guess, (laughs) you know, they'll make some excuse that they ran off or, or had a fight and never returned. And of course they've now destroyed the body or disposed of the body in such a way that we never recover it. We don't even take a case, uh, a, a report initially as a, as a homicide, it's usually taken as a missing person. And so I have got nothing to return to years later. So what do you do with nobody missing persons or nobody murders is you tell the jury, look, if this was a murder on the day she vanished, well, then a bomb went off, a bomb of anger. And we're going to trace the fuse that burned up to that bomb. We're going to trace the fallout that occurred after that explosion. And between the fuse and the fallout, we're going to determine what really happened here. And that's what we do in these cases, there are fuse and fallout. Well, if you didn't have the New Testament for whatever reason, either you refuse to read it or every copy is destroyed uh, or you just, you know, whatever, imagine some future weird dystopian universe in which every, uni- every New Testament is destroyed. Well, it turns out, but from just the fuse and fallout of history, you can completely reconstruct the story of Jesus in some of the most unusual places that you may not expect. And that's exactly what, the kind of ripple effect that Jesus should have had if he was who he said he was. And so this book really makes a case from everything that's outside the new Testament rather than because, you know, cold case Christianity focuses on what's in the new Testament person of interest is the flip side of that. And that's why I hope these two books together will help make a case.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think they do. Um, And, you know, it's funny when you say the impact, like in a way a lot of people aren't focusing on the impact of Jesus, but like it's everywhere when you look at it, it reminds me of the quote from the gospel of Thomas where where the kingdom of God is laid out before men, but they do not see it almost, you know, like our, our year that we write down the pen and pad every, every day, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. but most of the world, you know, even follows that impact. And even if they don't practice it, like I come from Ireland, so big, heavy Catholic um, background there. Now, what, I don't actually say when someone asks me my denomination, I just say I'm Christian mm. and maybe I'm still working towards that. I'm tr- still trying to figure that out because really I couldn't defend some, some of the scandals. and I didn't know enough about how to do that. And um, so I said, well, look, I went straight back to the word. And yeah, I said, But yeah. well, what did this guy actually say? You know, and yeah, I, went, I, I went to Israel and I stood where they stood and I um, got rebaptized and they, I tried to piece it together by the book itself and i said this is like this is unbelievable stuff like and i was the youngest guy walking around nazareth you know with these tour groups and all but at the same time you know the 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 impact of it i think is just amazing and um and i find that that's that's a great thing for the likes of this book because you can hear someone tell their their testimony and you can say yeah well sure that's fine that happened to you and i'm, I'm sure that was impactful in your life yeah but that doesn't mean anything to me i think that's why sure. Person of interest and this work, the analytical kind of scientific fact
1: base and um approach
0: is so powerful. Have you found that
1: well i, I so I, the analogy I try to use because I think you raise a good point you know like how do we how do we identify ourselves like like what if somebody said to you you know you're it's really easy to fall into some form of denominationalism or or you're like what kind of christian are you right because then i'm going to make i'm going to hold you accountable for the entire history of stupid in your in your category you know whatever category you are i'm going to find something to complain about and now you've got to defend the history of your denomination now so imagine this thought experiment imagine that you are an alien and you're flying in from the other side of the universe and you're approaching the solar system and you You've got an assistant who says, you know, we're going to hit the, this planet called Earth here in a little bit. And if you want to know anything about there's a lot of Christians there. Would you like to know what Christians are like, what they believe and how they interact? And you're like, okay, yeah, sure. I am mean, not if there's going to be a bunch of them. I'm happy to, to look at that. So they give you a Bible, a New Testament. So you can actually examine what Christianity claims and how Christians behave. Because, you know, there's the book of Acts. will tell you all that. So, so you read through all of that and then you get here and you get off the ship. And the only preparation you had for encountering Christians was the New Testament. Do you think you'd be surprised at what you discover in terms of how Christians uh, interact, what churches are like? I I think you would. And and you're just coming, now Now you'd be shocked probably. You'd say, I'm not quite sure how to line up what I'm seeing with what I found in the New Testament. And this is the the problem, I think, right? I was that alien uh, at the age of 35 in Los Angeles County. We, we don't, we, I just was never around Christians. It is not a church culture. It's not like you're in the South, in America, in the South. This is a deeply church culture. So everyone is kind of raised in the church. They would call themselves Christians, even if they have no idea what it means. They would still say this is culturally who they are. That was not me. I didn't have that experience. I didn't know. I'd not ever been in a church. I'd never, I'd been part of a church congregation. Didn't know anybody who was part of a church congregation. I was the alien who had no idea what the history was, but now I've got a new Testament and I'm reading through the new Testament. And I'm, I'm right away asking my wife. I don't know. Like I get it. Um, I think that Jesus is who he said he was. And I gave my life to Jesus. I wanted to be a Christ follower, but I used to ask my wife, but why do you think we're doing it this way? Mm -hmm. Like if you look at our experience and how we're attending church and what the, how the church is organized and how the church interacts in the community, like, This doesn't seem like it. it, There's like a disconnect for the the stranger, who was me, uh, entering into this uh, from the other side of the universe, right? So, so I think what um, we hear a lot about this expression of deconstruction, right, where people will deconstruct and they're moving away from their faith. I, I no, I didn't want to. I want to move closer to Jesus by deconstructing what we've made of this. Like I want to simplify let's I, I only want as my guiding principle. I don't care what the history of any people group was. People groups are problematic. Mm-hmm. We're all fallen humans who do stupid things. So I'm really not as concerned about the history of people groups as I am about what does this text say about Jesus of Nazareth and what is the outcome that is going to show up in our lives? How ought we now live? And, and this is the thing that is, is so for me, I've always stepped, if you ask me, I'm a Christ follower. And I've given my life to Jesus. I trust Him as Savior. That's a lot more to say than just say I'm a Christian. I get it, but I'm just trying to simplify, right? Because I know that the minute you say you're this or that, you now have acquired all of the baggage, the historical baggage of this yeah. or that. You put in the and box, and you yeah, your, and your exactly. But so, I mean, I'm is that your motivation? Raw, I'm looking for the rawest form, right? The yeah. simplest and rawest form, for sure.
0: And is that like? I know now I found this in myself even when I had my um, conversion, sometimes I I struggle to find the correct word to say I was skeptic. I was never completely atheist, but I kind of had an experience that made me think that right now I've been shown that this is real way and strange things that happen. Like I started being guided towards places and I, from the Bible, from the new Testament, what I liken this is to where Christ talks about the helper, you know, or the Holy spirit. And, you know, I felt that when I was doing the right thing, you know, you stand on edge and you all of a sudden you know the um things in life didn't matter so much the big car or what to, you know money and yeah. i i've recently quit my job for a less paying job closer to home so i have that more family life and um, and i i found um a psychological change now mm-hmm. that's i wanted to ask you this because i came from that with a spiritual experience where you came to your conversion from an analytical experience but did you still find you had that psychological change where um, I know it seems like your, your motivation behind writing the books as well as a Christ follower? It's to do the work of God and, you know, you know them by their fruits. And I suppose that's what it's like being Christian. And that's what the yeah. alien would expect. But did you find anything changing mentally when you discovered that Christ was the truth?
1: Yeah, no, there, there, there definitely was. But I'm suspicious of any kinds of experiences. Mm-hmm. And, and part of the reason why I'm suspicious of experiences is, is because I, um, my dad had a second marriage um, as a family I wasn't raised with, um, but I would see them very often. And these folks were Mormons. And it probably kept me away a lot from, um, from just thinking about Jesus seriously, for, because I felt like this was something that was kind of demonstrably false. Um, yet they all had an experience of the Holy spirit, they said, they confirmed for them, that Joseph Smith, a prophet of God in the book of Mormon is true. And so I just thought, well, I mean, look, I, if you do the job, I do very long, you're going to discover there's all kinds of people, uh, unusual people <laughs> that maybe that you, if you're not in a job like this, you're not going to come into contact with people as much as you will in law enforcement, because you're going to get calls one after the other of people groups that you typically don't live next door to, or they're not part of your family. They're very different than you not always bad, sometimes really good. I mean, they're just, but there's more diversity because you're forced out into the community, which is very diverse. So so you get to meet a lot of people and everyone's got some kind of experience or belief that they ground in their experience. You wouldn't think all of those uh, claims are true. And they're, and they're not grounding them in something that's object. Look, we're in a culture right now where I think the millennials and Gen Z, that generation, I'm a boomer, so I'm an old guy. But if you look at the generation of younger people, I think we are more inclined to, to determine if something is true or valuable based on our subjective feelings than on an objective external claim, right? It's, it's really, how do I judge if this is true? Well, it's an experience that's my lived reality. It's my lived experience. Uh, this, this determines what's true for me and this idea of your truth and my truth, you hear it all the time, speak your truth. Uh, Why do I care about your truth? If I got my truth, then we're just kind of uh, why would we be surprised in a world where there is your truth and my truth that we are even more polarized on social media. We don't have any objective truth. We can both run toward. We are just chasing our own passions. Our own feelings. So I've always been suspicious of anything that I would determine to be true based on feelings or experiences because they can be deceptive.
0: Yes, absolutely. And
1: I don't know what how to ground them. So so for me personally, yeah, I, I do I do know that that as I became committed to Jesus, um, my mind was opened in ways that it hadn't been before. And but I'm always like the suspicious part of me says, don't trust that, Jim. Mm, 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 mm. That could be something else. That could be or not, that could be, who knows what that is, but, but we, we will know we, everything has to be tested against what you're learning in scripture to make sure that this is consistent with the biblical worldview, because a lot of the, the, the feelings and experiences that my family was having as, as Mormons, I mean, we, 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 uh, you can, I mean, how do I differentiate that? Are we we here to say that everyone who has a religious experience is connected to the truth? Because that's, I mean, pretty much religious believers have experiences,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: but these claims that made by the different religions are contradictory. So they can't all be, they could all be false and grounded purely in in emotion and in feelings and experiences, or one could be true. And the rest could be false, but if that's the case, then how do we differentiate? Well, we can't use our feelings and emotions to do it, and our experiences, because everyone's having something. So we have to go beyond that. So that my the logical me coming into this knew that that yes, you're going to experience some things, some sense of joy, rightness, appropriateness of of settledness, of peace. But I wanted to make sure I wasn't just talking myself into that. I wanted to make sure I wasn't just um wanting it so desperately that I kind of is a, you know, manifest reality. It just, here, here it is because you want it so bad or because, you know, somebody else in your family, I felt really um, blessed now, looking back at it, lucky then I would have said that Susie and I came to the same position at the same time. So I didn't feel the tug of, well, you know, I could please her. I could please, I didn't have any, as a matter of fact, still Susie and I are really the only Christians in our family um, that we know for sure, (laughs) you know, there's a few, but not many. And uh, they're not in our immediate family. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like I'm not trying to please my dad or my mom, these aren't Christians. Um, So it's really about what's true and how do I get to that point without trusting. This is why when we start doing things like looking at the evidence, either inside or outside of scripture, we're doing the same work that Jesus did even before us. Remember that that and I wrote a book on this called Forensic Faith. And I did this because after I wrote the book on Jesus, the first one, Cold Case Christianity, that was very popular. And then I wrote a book called God's Crime Scene, Making the Case for God from Science and the Universe. And I realized as I was going around the country speaking at churches, that that usually it was somebody like you, who maybe is a leader in the church or a member of the church who had somehow convinced the pastor to have me come in as a speaker. The pastor had no interest. In making this kind of case. Oh,
0: that's and interesting. so
1: I would get there and I'd be like, oh, okay. So I'll be introduced to the pastor. It was usually the deacon or the elder who would pick me up wow. and I'd come from the airport and we'd get there and he would introduce me to the, or the pastor would take that weekend off because they had a guest speaker. So I'd never even get to meet the pastor. And, and so really the whole thing was being run by a deacon or an elder or an influential person in the church who that pastor had said, fine, 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 go ahead and have them come. So I knew I needed to write a book about why it's important to make a case to begin with, because it seemed like a lot of folks in our community had saw no value in this. And that's a book I wrote called forensic faith. And what I'm looking at there is just what is the rich evidential history of Christianity, starting with Jesus Mm -hmm. through his disciples, through the gospel authors, through the earliest Christians in the church, the leaders in the church to the present age, like what role has evidence always played in Christianity and that's what we're trying to kind of examine. It's a very thoughtful. This is a this is a teaching worldview that is grounded in principles that are taught from one generation to the other. Jesus did not say go out and make converts. He said, "No, go out and make disciples, teaching them." Every that means if I'm going to, have to teach you from the book, you have to read. Well, if you can't read, I'll have to teach you to read. Oh, we don't have him have an alphabet system. Okay, we'll have to invent an alphabet system and translate this into your language, which we're going to create for you, this alphabet, and then we're going to teach it to you. He inaugurated a teaching educational worldview. So from its inception, Christianity has always been a thoughtful uh, how to explore the life of the mind because we're creating disciples and we're teaching them everything that was taught to us one of the earliest documents of all christian documents uh, after the gospels is a document called the didache which is a um, uh, the teaching of the 12 apostles to the nations this idea was that hey we we we're going to have to teach we're going to have to this was used to catechize early believers so from the beginning this has been we've been people of the book who have been teaching others about the book and, and that that is a thoughtful worldview
0: yeah. And that's what they say, isn't it? The logos working, the the word um, and even the Christianity is is the way of the book. Isn't that what they say? You know, that's the way. And it's amazing that, yeah. you know, the like of your book 2000 years later is still the best way of doing that. It still lays it out so well. Um, and, you know, it's interesting you're saying about them pastors and taking the time off, because I find that one of my aims might be the more you hear people talk and the more they're saying oh I don't believe in any of that and you know I know you know this because I know you're a youth pastor and I know mm-hmm. that the colleges now kind of uh, the schools have kind of run God they've separated that yeah. an awful lot and maybe it's the way it's being taught maybe it's the way sermons are being told I'm not sure the sermons in Ireland are different than the sermons in in America but I know they also differ from state to state and from place to place sure. but Absolutely. it's very much the um the kind of mumbling and now, I have heard Bishop Barron say that uh, does come from the Latin way, and that is a good way of teaching, also. But there is this exodus from the church. Mm-hmm. And I think because of the academic society we live in now, you know, they, they really should be bringing, like wanting to bring um, the likes of yourself on who can appeal to that younger generation. Because I fear soon that we know I'm going to the church. And maybe they're doing something wrong and they're missing something major there. And maybe it's, maybe that's why uh, I took a more turn towards Christianity and try to focus it in a bit more because, you know, you, you say a passage of scripture and you keep your head down and that's the word of the Lord and you turn the page, but how does that, how does that work in my life? You know, how does that relate to us right now? And I think that that time needs to be set aside. And I know maybe a lot right. of pastors do this, but um the, the relatability, I guess is missing. And that's what I find in, in, in my culture, anyway, I can't speak for everywhere. And I think people are kind of going, oh, that's, that's boring, to be honest. I sit there through that. Yeah, yeah. I did yeah, hear sorry. a friend saying recently, though, like, even though it's boring, I still come out feeling a bit better every time I go there. Um, hmm. And maybe you touched on this a little bit when you are talking about the, ar- ar- sorry, the architecture of the church and letting light in and things like that. I'm not sure, but there's definitely something there that needs to be, something there that's worth preserving. Um and maybe this is the way of doing it. Maybe by going into a book where it's the um the academics way, you know, the college way. Maybe that's how you approach this. Fact-based. Well, I,
1: you know, I don't know. I, mean, I I think I think in the end, what, what I would say is that about halfway through writing, writing this book, which was just a book about making a case for Jesus from evidence outside of Scripture, uh, evidence from history, um. I realized that we were, this is really a book about why Jesus still matters. And so we changed the approach, we went back and rewrote the first chapters and and changed the subtitle and why Jesus still matters in a world that rejects the Bible, because it turns out that that is, I think, part of the problem is relevance, right? So when I talk to young people, I always say that you have to provide two whys for every what, because it's easy to remember that expression, two whys for every what. And what that means is you, you might have a claim, you know, you're opening the Bible. This is the word of God. You, you proclaim a, what a claim, what is true about Jesus? What is true about God? What is true about the Bible? You proclaim these things, but you need two whys for young people for every, what the first one is, well, why is, why do you think that's true? Like, give me some reason why this is true. Aside from the fact you're just saying it's true. Like, can you support this in some way? Can, can you actually defend this in some way? That's the first why. The second why though is, okay, so great, you've made this claim and I can see why you're saying it because you made some you defended it, fine. But why should I care? That's the second why. Why does it matter? And and I think if we just if we, if we're not careful and and this is why we need to shift because we, because young people have so internalized this view that it truth is not about an objective claim outside of yourself, it's just about this subjective feeling we talked about. And so the question is, well, how is this going to change the way I feel? What's it going to do for me? This, this, that selfishness of why should I care, right, is something we must address. And if, if only it's for a period of time when we are in this state of postmodernism in which um, we haven't train wrecked this idea yet, which I think we will. I think when we live a couple of generations uh, pursuing every claim of truth as though it's just grounded in my opinion. That is not going to bode well. It's it's going to, in the end, we all, whether we want to admit it at all or not, we have some transcendent truth that guides us that we, you know, if it might just be that we, we believe in our family. And so if you're a Wallace, you, this transcendent value of being a Wallace supersedes your personal, but regardless of what it is, we're all bending a knee to something. Mm -hmm. Even if the bending of the knee is just to the objective belief the objective claim that everything is subjective—that itself is an objective claim. To live that way means you have to say that that's the only that that's the true way to live, and you're claiming that's objectively true, even for anybody. Well, even so, again, this is so self-refuting that at some point it has to come to an end of itself. You have to empty out that experience and say, okay, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm done now. I've, I've emptied that out. And I realized that, that I'm off to the next. So it just might take generations to do this. We weren't always, there were times when, under modernist views of truth, when we make, we make these kinds of objective claims and people would try to, def, here's what's interesting. Even though the culture in America, at least is shifting toward this subjective high value of personal feelings and lived experience. It hasn't yet, at least I'm watching to see if it has. It hasn't yet permeated where I have to work, which is in courtrooms. In courtrooms, it still is about making objective claims about behaviors, historical behaviors, the crime that was occurred five years ago, and then making an objective case from evidence that this is how it happened. And we still try to weed out those jurors that would be inclined to allow their personal biases or their personal subjective feelings interfere with what we would call a fair examination of the facts of the case. Mm -hmm. So even though in a culture that is becoming more and more subjective, there's still a place where the rubber meets the road and those are in criminal trials. And so we've had a couple of big ones here this year in America. And so far people are taking, I'm sure that the, the jurors have, personal views, but they are letting the evidence kind of guide them. And that's still happening. I think when you start to see that you can't even um, adjudicate um, an event in the past at all, a crime that occurred two years ago, because regardless of the videotape you might have on this or the video cameras you might have there in place that record this, there are people who just think that for them, this is not wrong. I can't even bend my knee to the objective laws of our nation. And then it gets to that point that I know we've been run by complete subjectivism. So, but we, that's not happening yet. So, so I'm, I'm kind of kind of curious to see, but that kind of tells me that in our heart of hearts, we know that there are truth claims that need to be grounded in something more than our personal opinions of people. And we kind of know that in our heart of hearts.
0: Yeah. And that's a great point. And you know, when you bring it back to the courtroom analogy, uh, I actually, I'm leaving my job and transport at the moment going to the courts I'm starting in January. Um but when you you know there's two things that comes up. I know you don't like being called an apologist, you're more a case builder. And I think that's that's mm-hmm. that's a great way of saying it as well because you do have apologists who have that subjective um trying to motivate people get the crowd. Then you also need the analytical facts. But it's like that I think in the courtroom as well and obviously you can correct me if I'm wrong but you lay out the facts of the case right. and the jury then if if there's not if it's not a clear sign then they have to use their intuition to a certain extent and come together on it and get it over the line and i wonder if that's similar to um skeptics maybe like if you have to when they when they ask you present them the facts but i think then like you said they're going to say well, what's that mean to me how does that mean in my life like what's the fallout there and i think it's maybe that intuition that you know, I, I often say, well, look, you know what I, I find, all I can say to you is how it's changed me, but it might be different for you. Like I studied these facts and I concluded that this, this is true. Like, you know, um, but, and it has changed my, my whole way of guiding my life. It's it's brought me down, you know, um, much more meaningful paths and pursuing something that's more, pursuing uh, something meaningful rather than expedient. And I think that, like the courtroom it's the facts and then you need that maybe that intuition and maybe i'm wrong but i'm just trying to figure out how to tackle the exodus
1: from the church in that way you know well i i think that so i think that in the end we all make decisions about what it is we're going to bend our knee and submit to so in the sense to the sense that um i had to kind of examine the the case and the evidence for christianity before i could bend my knee to it um that that was the value that the evidence had for me And and by the way, that approach is not so self-centered that I thought that I was in the end. It's all a God thing. God is going to God is using the evidence to help me to make a decision. And then once I bend my knee to that decision, I don't don't have to return to the evidence every day. My, my, My journey is not to constantly review evidence. No, I've actually done that. I made a decision based on that evidence. And now it's about a life of submission of how do I turn corners and draw closer to Jesus as an act of submission on a daily basis. That does not require me then to constantly review the evidence. I've already made the decision. But the question is, how did I get to a point where I made the decision? Now, I, you'll hear people all the time and will say, well, look, this is, you make it sound like you have the intellectual capacity to weigh the evidence and actually accurately make the decision to begin with. But as your fallen human nature, how look, in the end, God is going to use something to draw us to himself so we can make the decision. For many of us, it'll just be the, 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 the pure gospel message. But clearly he, he needs humans. He doesn't need him. He's using us for whatever reason to share a message with other humans. He doesn't need any of that. He could actually have us all come by way of dreams, all come by way of visions. We could become Christians some other way. But instead, he, for whatever reason, lets us <coughs> pardon me communicate the message to others both because it's an all act of grace. My deciding I was suddenly interested in Jesus, that's not a move I could make. That's a move the Holy Spirit makes. And then I'm ready to listen to the evidence. Now my way in is to listen to the evidence and to make an assessment. For others, it'll be different. Mm-hmm. And, and, but that act of, of, being able to share evidence or share the gospel is another act of grace on God's part, because he doesn't need you, but he's using you anyway. Now, isn't that interesting? So it's an act of grace that, ter- that turns, that flips the switch that allows us to hear the gospel. It's also an act of grace that allows us to be used to uh, speak the message of the gospel and in one case, God is uh, is is justifying; He's He's saving. In the other case, He's sanctifying; He's growing us as communicators of the evidence or communicators of the gospel. All of it is God's grace; it's all God's power. But it's it's this mechanism. By but I think in the end, for me as somebody who now understands why this is, I, I don't wrestle anymore. With questions in my own mind. Why would God allow that? Or why does God do this? Or what, you know, these are issues that I have examined. I think there are a lot of us who have accepted a lot of truth claims because they're true, but we haven't examined them. So then when someone questions us, we're kind of flat footed. Now, this can either cause us to have internal doubts and live slightly differently because we are wrestling with internal doubts, or if we're not prepared to answer our kids' doubts, so we can't help them to get to the place where they're like, "Okay, I'm in. I submit. I don't need to go back there again. I don't need to revisit that constantly because I've already looked at those um, issues. I've already looked at those claims, and I know now why I'm a Christian. I don't. I, I'm. I just think we're far less likely to be shaken if we've at least looked at the claims once, and and then mastered and moved on, and moved past those claims. I have seen this in the life of young people. If they've encountered the claims with me before they get someplace where they encounter the claims with a the stranger, they are far more likely to say, well, yeah, I've already done, been there, done that. i uh, have already, yeah, I, I I get it. I understand why you're wrestling with those issues, but I'm not anymore because I've already I've already wrestled with those issues. And for these reasons, I've moved on. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to do, I think, with young people. I, don't, I know that in the end, though, we're going to have to provide the two whys for every what. It's not going to be just apologetics. The first why. Like, why do you think that's true? At some point, it's going to be relevance. The second why, why should it matter to me? And so we're going to have to help show young people why the change to life um, is a better, a better life. And I I always, the modernist in me says it should look, I don't care if it's a better life. It's a true life. I'm not after this to have a better life. And I think it's dangerous when we pursue Christianity for the kind of life it might give us. Look, historically, Christians have suffered. They're suffering in most places in the world today outside of the West. So, so it's not like, you know, they're not becoming Christians over there because it's giving them their best life now. Instead, they are Christians over there and they're getting killed for it. So there has to be more than just, you know, what, what, why should it matter to me? I I want to be a Christ follower because it matters to the God of the universe. (laughs) Okay. But I get it. We're in a time right now where young people need to know, does this, does this, does he still matter to me? Like, I I don't, I'm not feeling it. And, 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 and by the way, you've had a conversion experience that you think really is also grounded in your emotions and your feelings and your experience. But for a lot of young people to hold to the moral teaching of Jesus on sexual identity, on traditional form of marriage, on sexuality, really, these are, are going to be headbutting the cultural expectations for young people directly as we go forward. You either got to reinterpret the teaching of Jesus or ignore certain teaching of Jesus or just reject Jesus altogether because the culture is saying that the, the, those views. Are outdated. Those views are, are 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 hate speech. Those views are immoral now. Um, this is so so. How are we going to convince young people if it's all about how this makes you feel? Because in the end, it's going to probably lead to the rejection of your peers, yeah. and certainly the rejection of social media channels going forward, and the rejection of the publishers who are going to be able to post their books on Amazon. You know, this is where this is headed. So we're going to have to help our young people realize that, yeah, there's something bigger than your feelings or what this might do for your life to make it better. As a matter of fact, this may not make your life better, but it is true. So does truth matter to you? It's interesting. You know, when you talk about the cultural change
0: and there's a, you see, I think in some way organized religion has scarred the way this generation is thinking about faith and they can't separate the the um, shortcomings of the organized religion in the past to the faith, just just faith, their own faith. And I think that that's ran people from the church a bit that uh, because like our grandmothers and grandfathers probably believe blindly in a way, you know, and this has been the culture yeah. and the priests knock around at the door and he was he was more important than the chief of police. You know, he, you know, you had to make sure he had a cup of tea and the kids were sitting down still and we'll be there Sunday. And, you know, it was a checkup thing. And I think then the next generation who saw that as kids were kind of like, like, why do you believe that? And and I think there was a bit of blind faith. Now, when I say blind faith, something was working in their life for them enough to keep them going and believing. I do think that subjectively, but they didn't have the facts that we have now where the way media and academia has gone, you know, we need the facts now to, to get the next generation in and say, look, I, I'm not saying abandon organized religion. I, I, I think that's it's done so much good, you know, um, yeah. much, much more good than, than bad. But I do think it's the, um, it's the culture now that people have been scarred by that and there's mm-hmm. a different approach that needs to be taken. And make, it, it is the analytical facts-based approach. But I think we need to break that into if we're going to get people going to church again, we need to somehow tie that into the teachings of the church in some way, you know, like encouraging the likes of yourself yeah. to come and guest speak or um, even, you know, what Jordan Peterson was doing with the, uh, the biblical um, lectures. Yes. and and kind of relating it to people and they were getting it and maybe that might open the door and say well let me look into that and then the next thing they might pick up is james warner wallace's book you know because that's the next or that's either the first step in stone or it's definitely one of the major ones Um, and i I
1: think you know i think if you look at it i always i'm hesitant to go with an either or right so both and so so where 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 christianity has thrived and even in difficult situations is when it resembles it's where it's familial here's what i mean um if you look at the first century church, if you look at the church in China today, uh, it's thriving. It's growing in the midst of, of, of persecution or of at least, you know, no one wants it and culturally. It's not in favor in China. Why is it growing? There are some estimates that, that, that China by the 2030s, 2040s will have 250 million Christians, which would make it the largest Christian nation in the world. Now, if that, I mean, it's a good chance you could always try to quell that by just eliminating Christians. But what happens is that when Christianity stays familial, it has a huge impact. Here's what I mean by that. If you think about your extended family, if you had a, a, a family reunion tomorrow, you would invite your uncles and aunts and cousins, your extended family. That would probably amount to what, maybe 50, 35, 40, 50 people, maybe more for bigger families. But everyone there would have a connection. You would know these cousins. They'd be glad to see them. You, have, you reconnect. You have a family ownership. You have a family identity that you're all under that banner. And when churches are just groups of people who feel that they have a familial connection, um, you see it grow and strive. And the world around us, like in the first century, says, wow, these folks, they love each other. They love each other so well because they're familial. Now, part of the family structure is that you're not your family's not three thousand people. Your family's not even three hundred people. Your family's probably around fifty people, and you know them all personally because it's that size. Size does make a difference. Also, how you structure when you meet—like you don't have this rigid, like liturgical meetings when you're a family. They're a little more freeform. Kids are screaming. You don't take the kids and say we're going to have a separate. Room and experience for the kids. Oh, you're a high schooler. No I'm sorry. you have a separate room. No, at family reunions, everyone's in the same room. And they make noise. It's dirty, it's messy. And it's not always as structured, but it's beautiful. And so a lot, and I've been now, look, I love every church and every size of church. And I've been a church staff of of mega churches that were well over 15,000. I've been on a church staff of about 250 to 300 people. I've actually led a church here at six, uh, for about six years. That was just 50 people. But I will tell you that when the church retains its familial structure, it is different. And, And you know, each other. And then when you have when someone's got a, an issue of doubt, the, the it's not just the, the raw facts. Well, let me give you the facts. Let me give you one of Jim's books. It's about a relationship. Let me walk with you for a while. Let me tell you how I struggled. It's, it's, it's always relationships and facts together that make all the difference. So you can give a book, but I don't have a relationship with that person. Or you could read the book yourself and you have the relationship with that person. And now you have both elements of that equation in place. So I I do think that, that uh, when I look at people who make objections to the church, I always stop them and say, whoa, 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 whoa. hang on. I'm not, I'm not a churchian. I'm a Christian. That's a very different thing. I'm like you. I don't understand the church the way we've, I understand what it is to be the church, I think, but I don't understand whatever version of church you have. You've got some image in your head. It's not the same image I'm holding in my head. So let's be clear about that. And in the end, I'm not concerned about following the church or the history of the church or the history of any denomination. In the end, I want to return simply to what is true about Jesus. Now, we, we, I think we are called to be in connect. It's the, There are no lone rangers in this. We are connected as a family. But the question about how we connect, like we create these things, right? Where we're like, okay, the best solution for this is to invite in a speaker like Jay Warner Wallace. That's a very churchy answer. You, you wouldn't do that if, you're, if your kids had an issue with you or an issue they wanted to talk about at the dinner table tonight, you wouldn't say, well, let me get a guest speaker. No, you would learn how to, how to, how to interact with this. You would, you would live their life with them. And, and, and this is what we're not doing as a church. We have a tendency to see this as a didactic teaching from a stage with 50 to 5,000 chairs facing the speaker. There's, there's no chance for interaction, for questions to be asked. It's not. It's not a back and forth. It's. 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 And come and see this, then leave, because I got another set of people coming in in half an hour. Sorry, um, and then that's going to be it. You know, the only experience you're going to have is either here. Then maybe midweek, maybe Sunday night, depending on the church. But the inner. You know, I may not even see anybody from church until next Sunday. That could you imagine living your family life this way? No there's somebody who is your dad in your family somebody who is your son or daughter somebody who's your spouse we have these familial relationships you have your siblings and that the, to the degree to which the church is experienced as a family I think is it determines how well it it can sustain itself even in, in difficult situations where else would we go Peter said this when, when Jesus had the hard teaching and half you know a bunch of people left he turned to the disciples and said, you know, hey, do you want to go too? And Peter's like, well, I'm not sure where I would go, but where can we go? And when the church as a family plays the same role, yeah, I'm frustrated with this right now, but there, where else can I go? This is my family. Um, that It has a huge impact. Do you think in saying that then, does the church need to
0: evolve slightly to welcome people back in and take a more um personal and analytic approach. And I say personal and analytic because it's it's obviously taking the approach of the book and just reading out mm. you know the mm, passages yeah. and the word. Um, but maybe there's an argument there that the church is too sacred of a place to do that, that it's a place for worship and um a bit of silence. And I get it with the community spirit, <clears throat> but um this here, it's, it's much different. It's not, oh, Catholic Ireland, where all your family lived in the one community anymore. You know, my, my brother lives yeah. four hours away. My father lives here. and You know, I, um, but maybe does it, does it need to evolve? And, and is that just too big of a ta- um, an issue to tackle? Like, will, will that ever happen?
1: Well, I don't think it has to evolve to something new. It needs to return to something ancient. And I think part of it is, is that we in this culture love to assign to others the things we used to have to do on our own. So it used to be, if you wanted to eat, you probably had to raise your food. You But now we go to the store, we assign that to somebody else. Um, if, if you wanted your kids to be educated, you had to educate them, right? But now we have public schools. We can assign that to somebody else. You want to teach your kids about God? Well, you can assign that to your pastor or your youth pastor. So when I say that, that, that like, look, I've got neighbors in my neighborhood. Okay. I could say, well, I belong to the church. that's four miles away and we're all separated by distance. Or I could just say, you know what? I'm going to open my doors and we're going to start with dinner and I'm going to grow a community right here in my community of Christ followers who, and and by the way, when that happens, I learned this as a house church leader and we were a Southern Baptist church plant. So we had a large denomination planting us as a church, but we, we, I wanted it no bigger than 50. You have to know people by name. So when someone's got cancer and we had that twice in our group, that we would be praying with our hands on them every week, walking with them when they were in the hospital, they got visited not by the pastor who thought it was their duty to do the hospital visit, but by pretty much 35 or so of us would end up in that hospital at one time or another uh, connecting with that person. We're a family. You would do this for your, your sister. Mm-hmm. So you're doing it for your spiritual sister. Um, so the, the, the point is, is that we, we have to shift back and the reason why we don't do it is because in that setting i'm not going to be your pastor i might be the first among many because maybe i'm starting it when i'm hosting it okay fine but i'm not your pastor in that sense i need you to step up it's going to be your turn to teach the word of god next week and and i need you to take ownership of your own faith and and because and so I'm, I'm trying to raise up people who are equally capable of reading scripture, of raising their kids in script, not, not assigning this. We're not, your kids are going to be in this room with us. And and I can tell you that when you're talking about something and the kids are playing on the floor in front of you, uh, it's messy. It's probably much like the, the first century church was, um, their kids are kids crying. It's not for everyone because we've gotten so spoiled about assigning. We don't even want to put up with Like if we, if the worship five, the five songs, if four of those five, if if there's one or two songs we don't like, we're already like ready to make a move. I might handle one song I don't like, but if there's two out of four, I'm gone. That's just too loud. That's just too whatever. (laughs) Really? So we got to get simpler. We got to get like, like, do we even have a sense that this is, we've become so performance-based. Humbled. Yeah. Yeah, that everyone is performing now. Yeah. Right, everyone's performing in some way, either as the leader of the speaker of reading from scripture, or as the worship leaders who are singing. We're all in some, you know, and and we're only asking a small percentage to do the performing, while everybody else is watching. Now, look, I'm not suggesting, I'm not raising an issue that's that's not already been raised by many other better speakers on this than I am. I just know as a church leader that I, as I've experienced these different forms of the. This is why I think you're seeing it thrive in places where they're, they're not allowed to get above 50. It's really mean, if you're going to, if you're going to force us into these small secretive groups of five, six, seven, guess what you're going to form tight knit families of God that are got each other's backs and, and are now operating much more like the first century church. Once you get comfortable, you start thinking, well, you know, should we open a cafe? Maybe when people come, they want to have coffee. Okay, that is, we're at a comfort level now. Maybe we should have like an event. Maybe we should do you know, now. Suddenly, you're you're now you're, you're you. Does your family do that? <laughs> no, your family gets together regularly, and it doesn't have to be all that like you know big of a deal. Everyone can bring a potluck, and we're happy. There's no show in it. Um, so that's my whole point. Is I think as we become familiar now. For me apologetics the case for christianity is what from convinced me that i ought to submit to this kind of life so it has a role to play and when you see the, the impact that jesus had on history you know he's something different and and that's what i wanted our young people have no idea how much impact he's had on art literature music education science i wanted to demonstrate that i wanted to show that not only has it had a deep impact that you can reconstruct the story of jesus in a way they cannot be said of any other historical character, of any other historical person. Jesus is unique in the way he can be reconstructed from history. And that is because he is the God of the universe who stepped into his creation. And that's why, even though he's Buddha has a head start, Indra has a head start, Zoroaster has a head start, Hinduism has a head start, Addis, Heracles, anybody you can think of has head starts. Nobody causes that first century. To be called the first century, just Jesus does that. And if you look at all the other people in the first century, it's remarkable that it'd be Jesus to be the one to change the calendar. He's nobody. Yeah, he is a relative nobody compared to Nero and all the poets and world leaders of the time. This guy, though, we're still bending our knee to this guy. the the arts and the science and education is still bending its knee to Jesus of Nazareth. Those schools globally, even in your country, my country, all these countries, the top schools were founded by Christ followers. They may reject Jesus today, but they're there because Christ followers founded them. The modern educational movement is largely Christian. And to deny that is to just not know history.
0: You know, that's at the pulling together two points there, right? Well, because and one side, you know, deviating from the script slightly as a pastor, that's what sparked you by saying, by his simple line saying Jesus was the world's smartest man. That's and right. That's not, you know, it's that little, you know, I also had, you know, a priest uh, bring on a speaker, let's say, and they also deviate from the script, which made a big impact to me. And that's why I think that that part is important because that hit home with you mm. rather than him just reading out the Gospels, which, of course, are very important. Um, but that line really is what kicked you off into, oh, hold on a minute, isn't it? It was that whole, um, the right. audacity of going out with something like that, I suppose. And
1: well, think about it. It was, the, it was, he was answering the second why. He yeah. was trying to make it relevant to like, why should you care? You're an atheist in the room right now. Why should you mm-hmm. care about this? Um, well, because he's the smartest person who ever lived. Maybe yeah. you should pay attention to what smart people have to say. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what got me buying that first Bible. Yeah. So again, it's not that I, I return to this case every day and that's how I live my life of faith as I'm just making cases every day. No, no it's just, this is how I got in. Now, once you get in, I, I, I'm, I'm going to constantly struggle like everybody does to submit my life to Jesus of Nazareth. But as I do it, I, I have fewer doubts about, am I stupid to do this? Am I an idiot to do this? No, actually, I've been. I've already done all that. I don't need to return to it. But when you render a verdict, you don't have to second guess yourself forever. Um, you, in the end, you've rendered the verdict. You all come to a verdict together. And then this guy confesses five years later. Okay, you don't need to go back and revisit the evidence. That no, it, You did all that. Now you move forward. And this is what I needed to do. I needed to do all this. So I wouldn't constantly lurch and stop and lurch again because I'm constantly having to go back and revisit something because now that's a new doubt. No, I never, that's true. I never looked at that issue. Maybe I should go back and look at that. No, I did all that. So, so I'm just going to go forward.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting when you're saying about, you know, the family um, making the church a family kind of environment. And it, it actually, it made me think of, I listened to you speaking recently about, answering atheist questions and the first one was about your father and it reminded me very much of my father who um also is a uh, stubborn atheist Let's say stubborn atheist type i don't want to be too harsh yeah. to him because <laughs> even though he, he does say that he's he's a very smart man and he, he watches he listens to all my episodes and i think that's that's interesting, interesting. Because, yeah. yeah because we're on episode 35 but i know like and i always bang on with the same kind of thing by the end of it you know, what? the reason I dropped the training thought and truth, the training part is because I was rushing through the physical side because yeah, it's important, but it's not transcendently important. It's, it's, you know, you can only say so much about it. We're trying to hit yeah. to a deeper meaning. And I was rushing through that to get to what the guest where the guest stood on, you know, their yeah, yeah. Truth, no, no, you know, I totally get it. Yeah. But do you find, you know, as a detective, when you're, you, I know, I don't, I don't suppose your dad has changed his mind or has he even no. revisited, has he looked at your book yet? How, that that type of stubbornness maybe 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 comes from the old generation i was talking about that maybe saw what organized religion did maybe Mm -hmm. or when you're talking to people as a detective say a stubborn atheist type or stubborn skeptical type can you from your, your maybe detective skills are you picking up on body language and maybe the more the root cause of that
1: I, a little bit I mean I think in the end this let's just be honest about this for a, for a lot of people um it's it's hard to communicate truths to your family period. it was hard for Jesus to communicate truths and they, they you get rejected by the people who think they know you best and that, you can totally understand that and that's especially true when it's somebody who's of an older generation who has always you know had spent a significant part of their life as your mentor or as the person that you would turn to as the person who's further down in their journey or further along in their journey than you are. That's the person. Now you're going to try to communicate this. Like I've discovered something like you've had an extra 21 years in which you could have discovered it. So now you want to, to trust, but, but I go, yeah. I mean, when's the last time you were in, well, your kids are young. My kids are like 24 to 33 <clears throat> when now I listen to my kids because I feel like they're pretty smart, but I, I, I get it though, that, that it's hard To sometimes it's a pride issue, like, man, I wish maybe I should have done a better job of examining that issue and leading them. Now they're leading me. Um, That's hard, I think, for a lot of people. Um, So in the end, there's lots of reasons why people reject a truth claim that have nothing to do with whether it's true or not. And so we have to make sure that when we're talking to our family, that's not the issue. Yeah, I've given my dad. uh, I think he's got all my books, but I wrote God's crime scene to him. I know he hasn't finished reading it. That was from 2017. Okay. (laughs) And I gave him this book and I doubt that he's opened this one either. Um, What can you do? I think you have to kind of just, I find myself doing my best to, to be the kind of person I'm supposed to be. I always say this way. And i in forensic faith. I talk about this. When you've got somebody who's locked in as an objector, you can spend a lot of time trying to make the case to that person, but if they're locked in, you're better off. Because God has to flip the switch that opens their heart. When I didn't make a decision to walk into that church. That was God moving in my life. When I sat there and he said that, it struck me like, I'm going to buy a Bible and see if this guy's right. Well, that wasn't even me. That was God. For the first time, I was suddenly interested in the evidence for Christianity when for 35 years, I couldn't have been less interested. I mean, it was, it was just not important to me. It's God who flips that switch. So what I try to do with people who are really committed in their, in their skepticism is to model Jesus for them and to make sure that I um, pray, that I ask God to do in them what I cannot do in them. <laughs> you know, uh, I can't flip that switch for you. God does that. Now, once he does that, I think every discussion we've ever had will probably come back to mine. Or you might call me and say, hey, you know what? I wasn't paying attention then, but now I'm interested. Well, that's not going to be uh, something I said. It's going to be how God uses something that somebody says. So in the end, I am respectful of the fact that I've got limits. And Mm that will help, I think, all of us not to beat each other up when our loved ones are like, no, I'm not in. I don't don't want to listen to it. And don't bring it up around the family, please. It's just divisive. (laughs) You know, I've had all those kinds of conversations, especially when you've got a, a Mormon family like I do. It's like all this is going to be is a is a, a war of words at a holiday. And, and, and so, yeah, I, I want to be very respectful and I want to model something for my dad. So when all of it is said and done, he looks back and he goes, what was it about that guy that is different than everyone else in my family? And so if you are, I'm not, my, my daily effort is not to be different, but if you are now following Jesus, it, you're going to be different. And it's just the nature of it. And I want to leverage that difference for the gospel.
0: Yeah. So it's more showing the example in how it's living and how it's um, producing in your life rather, because I do know sometimes the more you push, the more, you know, it's a sensitive topic, people's beliefs, I find, you know, especially if uh, like even between family members, it can raise a lot of heated arguments. And I I always found that's very interesting how uh, atheists are so, you know, so ingrained and emotionally, you know, Um, absolutely. But like you said, that's a great way of approaching it, I suppose, you know, leading by example or living by example.
1: Well, and let's think about this for a second. I mean, we are so excited about who Jesus is, right? We are because we are Christ followers that we can't, it's going to overflow. It's going to come out and that's going to irritate some people. You know this because even on things that aren't religious, that, that you can get irritated by somebody who's a football fan of a certain team, a certain club. And you're like, really? Okay. I got to listen to this all the time. You're going to come here and make this case all the time while your team is so dang good. So, so I, I get all that where this is far more touchy. This is far more personal because your football team that you're geeked out on does not put requirements, not requirements, but have expectations of how you ought to live in response to your football team. Okay. So you could be a fan of something and it's not going to cause you to rethink how you're living. Yes. But this kind of claim does, it has moral implications. It has behavioral implications. And so unlike anything else you've ever tried to convince somebody of the, the stakes are so much higher here because in the end, um, my bending, my knee, it's like, there are still behaviors and thoughts, That i possess and that i do that i am not happy about as a christ follower i want to rid them i want to stop it like paul keep on doing the things i know i shouldn't do don't do the things i know i should do i'm a wretched man paul said that you don't think we're gonna have the same struggle and so the question then becomes like how do i you know this this is the but what i know now because i know this is true is that I am wrestling with things before I never gave a second thought. I would have celebrated those things. I would have rationalized those things. They would not have given me pause at all. Now those thoughts, those behaviors, uh, create great consternation. <laughs> they are, I, I feel like Paul all the time. Yeah. Well, that is the Holy Spirit working in me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And And this decision I made that God called me to caused all of this outcome of allowing the Holy spirit to wrestle that natural man is constantly wrestling with the spiritual man. That was never, that wrestling match was not happening before. So when you think about this, when you give a book like my book or anyone else's book that presents the case for something, Mm -hmm. this is the the most difficult decision most of us are ever going to make because it has outcome and implications like no other decision you're going to make, but here's, what's great. I'm not about comfort. If you were about a comfort, you would never be a police officer because all you're going to do all shift long is going from one uncomfortable situation to another. So you can't be a comfort person. That isn't going to happen. You have to be a justice truth kind of a person. I'm interested in what's true. And that's why I worry about us being able to communicate the, the gospel to the next generation because if what's true is what makes you feel good and it's always what makes you feel good and it's what you personally think, oh my goodness, this is going to be difficult, right? Because um, I'm not interested in what makes me feel good or what I personally think. I'm interested because I know there's a God and I know Jesus is that God in what Jesus thinks. (laughs) And so now that changes the way I think. It changes the way I want to go forward. I'm constantly asking. I'm grateful for the grace and forgiveness of God every day because I know how much I need it. And, and that's something that um, is, is, that's a hard sell. For. Now, look, that's the, the mission. And I think it's going to take two things, the facts, what is true, and then a relationship with which to live those facts out in front of people so they see that this still matters. That's the combination, I think.
0: Well, I think even even handing the, the likes of a book like this around the family might even be a step towards that. Um, and one thing I have to ask you is, but I'd love to see, which which Lee Strobel did, and I, I thought this would be, a great for you and you probably know what I'm going to ask you Um, is you know he made the movie the case for Christ and I think your story would be great to see in that media sphere as well is there any hope down the line that you might look at that
1: well it's not like I get that choice and it's not like Lee got that choice somebody came to Lee and uh from Pureflix and said hey we were thinking about doing this and of course it happened right and I think a lot of it is so but might it happen some, maybe you know, Lee's about, I think, seven or eight years older than me. So, so I still got some ramp there. I guess I can look forward to that. Just happened a couple of years ago for Lee. So maybe that's still my future. Um, but the reality of it is, is that I know that, that it doesn't really matter. But my bigger fear is celebrity. And I've been talking a lot about this this year, is, is that what we cannot be as authors is we have to kind of reject and shrink from celebrity. We've seen how it corrupts every person it touches. And we typically don't limit our own celebrity. We'll say I'll I'll guard myself from finances. I'll guard myself when it comes to sex or or, or relationships, right? But then when it comes to celebrity, like oh yeah, I want a bigger profile. Oh, yeah, I want to be because I want to I want to preach the gospel to more people. Really, what happens is you're preaching the gospel becomes the, the mechanism by which you're now growing your profile. Mm-hmm. Look, we have to be really careful with that. And so, what I love about my life right now is that I want it to be dedicated first and foremost to my wife because for years, she has been waiting for me to come around, right? Because I'm constantly working. So this chapter of life is just dedicated to, you know, um, that's relationship that God has given me. God has not called you or I to love our podcast or our, our YouTube channel or our ministry or our jobs, the way that Christ loves the church. He's called us to love our wives the way that Christ loves the church. That's a very unique relationship and a unique responsibility. And I want to do a better job of doing that. So that means that I'm going to have to shrink from those things. Like, like I had a career I've, I'm living on a pension. This is not a second career. This is just what for me being a Christ follower looks like in 2021 at this age, when I have the financial means, but to be able to, to write books and not worry about whether they sell, um, you know, this is really about reach now because, um, I'm not going to move. I'm not going to change my life. I'm in California. You don't want to buy a new car in California. You can't even afford the registration on a new car. So, you know, it's all good. Just relax and follow Jesus and talk about Jesus. And that's what we're trying to do in this, this chapter of life.
0: Yeah. Listen, uh, I I appreciate very much you coming on. And I think it's, it's, it's great because uh, the turn I've taken with the podcast to have someone like yourself on, it kind of exemplifies exactly the approach that we need to take and i think we've spoken about the approach as well and uh, i really recommend the person of interest book because you know I, I can see the appeal of even the front of it i I heard you speaking about how the novel look and it's it's, it's really is a, a gripping cover and uh, the inside of it it's just it, it it was surprised me i have to say the, the layout and the um just the, the structure you took with the book i think it's great Um, and i really admire your work i hope to see more books in the future and i'd love to see a movie in the future and i hope we get to speak again oh we'll get to
1: speak again for sure the other stuff we'll see but we'll get to speak again for sure thanks for having me anthony i appreciate you
0: listen uh, thanks very much again and uh, all the best yeah you too
1: okay i'll see you soon